house with the rose bushes? What happens if you get Aunt Mabel's money to take care of the house? Now you're like, yeah, right? You kind of went from beefy to beefy. <laughs> rose bushes. I like rose bushes now. We, we need to hear what our inheritance is. We need to hear what God has given to his people. See, every story, every testimony is our, amen? It's our inheritance. Every testimony, we often say at this church, every testimony prophesies. It tells us what is ours in Christ. Because we're part of the family, it's ours. And we need to hear our stories. We love to tell stories around here of what God's doing here at this church, the value of ours, but we need to hear our family stories. And so I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to walk you through 2,000 years of church history. Really quickly, obviously, a very brief overview. I'm not going to give you a lot of the details and a lot of the ups and downs and everything, but I, want to, I just want to tell you a couple of big stories, a couple of the big things that God has done or what Jesus has, been, has done. Because we've been learning this. Those of you who remember that we've been in a series, something that God is doing in us to give us a God's eye view. He's wanting to shift our perspective from a self-perspective to a perspective where we see the world and life and everything from his view, right? That we see a kingdom perspective, an eternal perspective. And that means, one of the things that means is taking a step back and looking at who are we as the church and, and, and what is he doing? We've learned this from Matthew 16, right? Verse 18, when Jesus said to Peter, this is about as much Bible as you're going to get today. Normally, you know, we get a lot more Bible. But uh, in Matthew 16, 18, we looked at this where Jesus says, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Amen? And that we've learned that Jesus is alive, that he has all authority in heaven and earth. Everything is under his feet. Nothing can stop him. That's why he said the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Death can't stop me. The cultural influences of this world can't stop me. Nothing can stop me. He's the one building his church, and it's his church. Amen? And so Peter, Peter went to heaven a long time ago, but Jesus is still building his church. Not only that, we saw last week, we saw that Jesus, as the king of his kingdom, as the leader of his church, that his kingdom is advancing and it's increasing. That the glory of God is filling the earth like the oceans fill the sea. And there is more glory in this earth today than there was when Jesus rose again. That his kingdom is increasing. He says in Isaiah 9, 7, we saw this last week, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And there's prophecies, multiple prophecies like Habakkuk chapter 2, etc., etc., that say his glory will fill the earth like the oceans fill the sea. His kingdom is increasing, and it has been increasing since the time he began his ministry. And it, he will not stop until all nations know him, people from all nations. He will not stop until justice is on the earth. He will not stop until that happens. And one day, he's coming soon. He will return. And the Bible says in Revelation, I think it's in chapter 11, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ. When he is king, he makes everything right. He will restore all things. This week I've actually been just, this is free by the way, this is a side note. I've just been blown away at Isaiah 11 where a lion and a lamb will lay down together and a child will lead them, play with a snake. 
just been blown away that God's restoration of the world will restore every created system, not just economics, not just politics, even into the very created order. And I was, I was hanging out at the Arboretum uh, this week, just kind of walking around praying, and I was, ha- I was standing next to a squirrel who was so obsessed with the sunflower seeds he was eating, he had no fear of my presence. I mean, he was fat. Literally. I mean, this squirrel was like, damn, you know, like this big squirrel eating these sunflower seeds. I was less than a foot away from the squirrel. And then these fish were at my feet, literally within two feet, just eating uh, stuff in the water. Tons of these fish. No, and I just had this realization there will be a day that I love birds, I love little birds, but they always fly away, right? There's a day when I will just be hanging out in God's creation like that, no fear. When Jesus is king, he leads with the law, his law. The Bible says in Isaiah 2, his law will be established in all the world. Well, what's his law? Love. And there's no fear in love. And I just had that glimpse. I'm hanging out with this squirrel, and I'm like, dude, there will be no fear. No fear. Animals will not fear. We will not fear. In our relationships, there's no fear. Just love. Perfect. But how does he establish that? Not through tyranny, through the transforming of people's hearts. And so, I want to, I want to talk to you about what, God, what Jesus has been doing as the leader of his church. 2,000 years. We call it revival. But the reality is when Jesus is leader of his church, when the church submits to Jesus and follows Jesus, the church comes alive. We use the word revival or awakening because it's something, when you awaken something or revive something, you bring it back to life. You bring it back to health. And so really revival or awakening in church history, those are the words we use, it really is describing normal Christianity. It's describing the church in Jesus' vision. When he died, he had a picture of what the church would look like on the earth, his glory on the earth. He knows what it looks like, his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And throughout church history, there have been churches, there have been movements, when the church submits to Jesus, when the church has preached the gospel that's in the Bible, the gospel of grace, that you can't earn it, it's by his grace that we've been saved, and it's by faith just trusting him that we receive this work that he's done by dying on the cross. When people receive that foolish message, the Bible calls it the foolishness of God, that foolish message that that salvation and redemption happens because one man shed his blood and rose from the grave. When the church stands on that word, when the church has chosen to walk in holiness and to love, and the church has chosen to move outward to the world, to go to the least, to go to the lost, and bring to the world that message, Remember, as the leader of his church, his mission and vision is simple, right? Make disciples of all nations. When the church has embraced that, it has always led to transformation in society. Always. And every time the church has deviated from the gospel message, the simple, simple, simple gospel message of being saved by grace through faith, every time the church has deviated and made something else other than Jesus the leader, something else other than Jesus the obsession, always falling. And so much of church history is a history of waves of revival as Jesus has awakened his people really as we have submitted to his leadership. So you'll remember in Acts chapter 2 
when 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit was poured out and 3,000 people get saved in one day. And there's hunger for the Word of God. Hunger for the presence of God. There's joy. There's miracles and healing. People are sharing their goods. They're spending time with Jesus and with each other every day in homes and in the temple. They're on fire. Normal, average people are inviting people to church. By church, I mean their house gatherings. So that people are coming to Jesus every single day. The church in Jerusalem, where where the church began, it exploded from 3,000, went to 5,000 men, plus women and children, in just a couple of years. Tons of people are getting saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, inviting their friends, moving in the power of the Spirit, love for God, love for one another. Why? Because Jesus was the leader, right? This was his vision, and we see it in Acts chapter 2, and we, we long for that in, in our own lives. They were so on fire for the Lord that when persecution hit, it says that they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. So that in less than a generation, the gospel spread through the whole entire Roman Empire. The book of Acts traces the ministry of the apostle Paul, but he was in no way the only one doing this. Before Paul ever made it to Rome, the gospel already made it to, the, to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, obviously. Already there was churches there. The Apostle Paul obviously was the major church planner, went all over uh, Asia Minor, which is modern day like Turkey and, and that kind of area, up into modern day Greece. And, and he planted churches all over those regions so that like in, in 100, 200 years later, there was millions of Christians in what's modern day Turkey. Tons of Christians in the Roman Empire. Though there was a lot of persecution in the first few hundred years of, of Christianity, there was a tremendous amount of revival. There was no organized, you know, public state church. The church just moved forward. Even through persecution, people started getting saved. A lot of us know that about 300 AD, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire, he made Christianity the quote-unquote official religion of the empire. He said, eh, Roman Empire, we're Christian now. And a lot of us who study church history, we kind of say, hey, that's a bad thing. Because, well, first of all, there was a lot of formalized things that happened that probably shouldn't have happened. But a lot of pagan influences came into the church. But more than that, if you say that the church is the state religion and then the church gets lots of land, well, then all the rich people want the land, so they just, you know, they become bishops. So a lot of corruption began to come in. But what we don't realize is that Constantine... The reason he became a Christ follower and the reason he called Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire is because of how much influence the Christians were already having in society. There were already millions of believers, even in the midst of persecution, that were rising up and bringing transformation to society so that he was being influenced by the wave of what God was doing in society. And even despite some of the negative things that happen in terms of the church becoming corrupt and stuff like that, and, and, and I'm not trying to somehow minimize that or make it a, make it a good thing. No, it's a, it's a bad thing. It's good and bad throughout church history. But what many of us have never heard, even Christians, maybe even some of you who have studied church history, we all hear, some of you have no idea even that Constantine did what I just said in 300, but some of you are like, oh yeah, Constantine, that's bad, right? Much much of, much of us will just say, oh, that's bad. What we don't realize is that Christian emperors from Constantine forward, not all of them were believers, not all of them did great things, but Christian emperors, because they began to learn what Jesus said, a leader is to be a servant. 
began to bring social reform and justice to the people. See, before, uh, before the em- these emperors became, became Christians, there was tremendous violence and, and immorality all throughout the Roman Empire. Slaves, women, children, no rights. Zero. Negative. Children. You, you, the, the, instead of abortions, if you didn't want a child, and this was very common, just leave the child on the rocks. There's no orphanages. They don't have any of those values. The values that we have in our Western culture came from the Bible, came from revivals. We take them for granted. There were no rights for women. They were less than nothing. Slaves, you could do whatever you wanted with your slaves. There was so much violence in, in, the Roman, uh, in, in, in many of the cities, especially in Rome, I should say. You don't go out at night. It's extremely violent. Those gladiator games that you've seen like in that movie Gladiator, that's for real. People had a crazy bloodlust. And Christians will be killed and persecuted in those, in those coliseums. And so when Christianity began to influence, who do you think started adopting the children? Who do you think rescued babies from being exposed? Who do you think started orphanages? Who do you th- think fought against these vices and these evil things? These are Christians. And their influence, their salt and light influence, started to change the way people saw things. There was no holy matrimony. There was no view of marriage as covenant. People would, people would have mistresses. People would commit adultery and, and commit divorce all the time. There was no, it was a contract. There was no holiness or covenant to marriage. That whole concept came from, from the Word of God as people experience revival. Listen to what these emperors did. Just, uh, this is a, one of the, from a book, uh, a guy named Sherwood Witt. Many permanent legal reforms were set in motion by emperors Constantine and Justinian that can be laid to the influence of Christianity. Licentious and cruel sports were checked, never fully uh, gotten rid of until a lot later. New legislation was ordered to protect the slave, the prisoner, the mutilated man, the outcast woman. Children were granted important legal rights. Infant exposure was abolished. Women were raised from a status of degradation onto that of legal protection. Hospitals and orphanages were created to take care of foundlings. Personal feuds and private wars were put under restraint. Branding of slaves was halted, etc., etc. I could go on and on and on of just the examples of how when you look at the word, when people began to submit to the leadership of Jesus Christ and look at the values of love and service and justice that began to lead and begin to bring reform. In fact, even as the Roman Empire fell, it was the church that held society together. Now, some of what happened was when the Roman Empire fell because the barbarians came sweeping in, the church gained more and more power. So that by the time of into the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, like you know, before the 1500s where Martin Luther comes in, Around, right before that 1500 time, the church owned tremendous amounts of land. So a lot of corruption began to come in. They just became super uh, powerful and super rich, and there was just a tremendous amount of corruption. And so over those 1500 years, or we should say from maybe 300 to 1500, corruption just continued to increase. But even in the midst of that, what many people don't understand is that as the Roman Empire fell, who do you think led the barbarians to Jesus? Who do you think maintained some semblance of order within society? The church. The church owned a lot of those things, and they didn't kick the church out. 
It's amazing when you look at church history through a much broader lens. You see the church being that salt and light and holding things together even in those hard times. Not to justify anything that was bad. But even throughout those 1,500 years of church history, where did the Franciscans come from? Where did the Benedictines come from? If you know anything about you know, the Catholic Church, they have, you know, in, in a Protestant church, we have denominations. You know, the Lutherans, the Baptists, the this, that. In the Catholic Church, they have tons of groups. Under the, Catholic, under the Roman Catholic heading, they have people, Franciscans, the Benedictines, all these. They were monastic or monastery, you know, monks. They were movements. They were revivals. They were people who would set themselves apart to seek the Lord and fast and pray and walk in holiness. Many of them were, were, were movements that brought transformation to society. Some of them were a little bit more like recluse. But many of them, the Franciscans, were huge into social justice. These were revivals of Christianity. These were fires that would spark all throughout 1,500 years, throughout dark age time, and yet the church never was dead completely. The Lord always had a remnant, a fire in his, the hearts of his people. As you move closer to 1,500 and the Renaissance is stirring and the printing press is, 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 it was created, technology and the Renaissance and all these things are beginning to stir things. and we're kind of, the, the world is kind of coming out of the dark ages. There were people who were laying their lives down that the normal everyday person could get, read the scriptures. So what we don't understand is by the time you get to 1500, around the time of Martin Luther, he wasn't the only one that brought reformation, what we call reformation or transformation. There were people before him who were laying down their life, trying to get this message of grace. There were people, there's a man that I hugely respect, his name is Erasmus, and, and he was preaching against the vices and the, and the corruption in the Catholic church way before Luther ever, he was a baby, the baby. And Erasmus was rising up and speaking against this. The Catholic Church had become so corrupt, they were selling your salvation. You could buy these things called indulgences, which is basically a ticket out of purgatory. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's not, that's even worse than like some cult that's trying to tell you you have to do works. That's, you have to buy your salvation? That's like horrible. I can't imagine we, the, the church went that far from the gospel. Does it make sense? It's the, mo, it's the most wicked thing you can imagine. It makes you want to throw up. It had gone that far. Become so bad. And yet in the midst of that, there's still these pockets of revivals. There's people like Erasmus and others who are rising up. Can you imagine? You can't read the Bible. You can't, you can't, you don't worship. You don't sing songs. We take this for granted that we can stand up and together worship God with our voice. You go to church, they do their thing, do the Latin. You have no idea what's going on. You have to receive the teaching from the guy who's telling you about these traditions. I'm not, I'm not dissing the Catholic Church. I'm just talking about that. In that period of time, things had gotten that bad. Ro Martin Luther rises up, and he has this revelation of the grace of God, that we're saved by grace through faith. And he, uh, he, 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 he takes that message plus his attack against the vices of the church, uh, the, the, the vices in the, in the, in the Roman papacy, his vi the vices of the indulgences, all that, and he takes it and he writes what's called a ni his 95 Thesis, nails it to the door of the church, which, by the way, is, was not a bad thing. That's what they did. He nailed stuff to the door. People would read it, that kind of a thing. It's how you got your word out. It's kind of like Facebook is now. And so he nailed, that thing to the, he nailed that thing to the door, or blogging, I guess. Uh, he nailed that thing to the door, and, and that, that is the beginning. October 31st, he, he, he started this this uh, movement, what happened was the Catholic Church wouldn't budge. They wouldn't admit it. They, they, they wouldn't bend. They wouldn't accept. It wasn't just the grace issue. It was all this corruption. And so what happened is he began to break away 
formed communities of people. He, he, he used the printing press to get the Bible into people's hands. He used tracts. Little, that's where the track comes from, little tracks, and would, would pass them out all over the place to get the message out that you're saved by grace through faith and that you don't have to earn it. And he spoke against the indulgence, uh, the indulgence. he spoke against the corruption of the church. And, and all of a sudden, these people, people, there was just a revival. People started coming alive. They were realizing that they could know Jesus, that they could walk with God, that they could be saved by grace. And they started forming communities, not just Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, all over Europe. People were forming these communities and they would come together like in, in the Calvin, in the, in the societies that Calvin formed. They would come together and they would seek the Lord. Congregational singing, singing together, writing hymns. Martin Luther's one of the first guys who actually write, uh, wrote what we would consider hymns. They begin that we could worship God together. They get the Bible into the hands of people. They preach the gospel like it actually is, right? And people started getting on fire, coming alive and there was this massive revival. Let me fast forward to the 1700s. In the 1700s, around, the, around let's say about 1720s or so, England, London, England, had become so bad. Much of us think our culture is bad. Our country is bad. A lot of us people will even say, I even hear statistics like this, you know, less than 4% of kids who are in the church today will be in the church when they're older. And that, that, that is the statistics if things keep going the way they are here. There were people back then, there was people in the 1800s who said, oh, in 30 years we won't even have a church. And there's people who have always said that in those dark days. London, England was worse then than it is now. They called it the gin age. The, the, the streets just flowing, metaphorically, with, with, with alcohol. People, taverns and, 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 and stuff just everywhere as people were just drunk. Uh, 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 the... the, the Social quality of life was so low. There's no protection for the child or for the, or for the worker in the coal mines or anything like that. The church had become super deistic. Deistic meaning they viewed God as out there, distant, far away. Their theology had completely deviated. That Anglican church uh, in, in the uh, an Anglican church is awesome. Just in that season of time, they had become super deistic. You'd have to buy a seat to get in church. The average person, the poor person, they didn't go to church. They didn't have the clothes to go to church. And so the church became completely irrelevant, recluse, secluded. They lost the fire for evangelism in that, in that place. In, a, in America, uh, the 13 colonies, we weren't necessarily in, uh, our own nation yet, but under Britain, though, though there were churches and there were people like the Puritans who were walking holiness on fire, much of the, much of the church, you can imagine, just because of the individualism, because of the disconnectedness from family, many of the youth, they just lived immoral lives. They just lived however they want. There was not that kind of fire for God. So, so both on, in, in, the, in, the, in uh, England and as well as here. In the 1720s, there was a man named Count Zinzendorf. This man, when he was a young child, gave his life to Jesus. Full on, just young kid. His parents were super rich, super powerful. He owned a ton of land. He could have gone into politics, could have been super, you know, whatever. And he rejected it all because as a young, uh, he, he, just, he just didn't want to be involved in, in that necessarily. Not to say that politics or anything is bad. But he said, Jesus, you have all of me. All of me. Gave his whole life to Jesus. So by the time he's 27, he owns this land. And these people called Moravians came and settled on his land, uh, a settlement called Hernhut. 
These Moravians were descendants of the Lutheran revival. They were one of those group of people who had caught that were saved by grace. These band of Moravians. But they were heavily persecuted. There was still a tremendous amount of fighting and persecution because of feudalism and religious wars and things like that throughout Europe in those times. But in those, in those early 1700s, these Moravians, under persecution, they came to Count Zinzendorf. They came to his land, and he, he let some of them live there, and then the rest just kind of snuck on. They kind of went and told their other friends, you know, hey, come on, you should live here. He's a good guy. He'll let us live here. And so Count Zinzendorf found himself with a bunch of Moravians and a bunch of other people, and he let them live there. He was only 27 and yet, from a, young, from a young age, he had this vision for the church, as in the book of Acts, for a church on fire. This man knew what he wanted. And yet, when he went out and began to get to know the Moravians and the people living on his land, tremendous amount of division. They were arguing about theology. They were divisive about various things. They were all kind of sectarian and had different views. And Zinzendorf... Um, was a very gracious man, and he would go around in, in uh, 1727, uh, about May, right around this time, right now. He went around to the different people for, for, a, for a little while, to the different families, and he would meet with them, and he would listen to them. He would listen to their complaints. He would listen to their views, and he would listen, and he would build a bridge to them, try to understand instead of fighting and everything. And then... In May, he gathered them together for a, for a church service. Gathered them all together. And began to speak to them for about three hours. He preached to them about unity. And he called them. He invited them to make a covenant. A covenant where they would be about Jesus and Jesus only. That they would set aside all these other doctrinal things. And they would just be simple about Jesus, Christ and Him crucified. And he called them to that lifestyle of prayer and that lifestyle of worship, that lifestyle of devotion to God where we give everything to the Lord. And that people on that day, May 1727, they made the people, God on their face before God, and they made a covenant to seek God together, to walk in unity. Things began to change. This little community, about 300 people living on Zinzendorf land. Over the next couple months, they began to pray together, seek the Lord together. In about August of that same year, just a couple months later, they're seeking the Lord. And a man, I think it was on a Sunday morning, a man is preaching, leading the people in communion. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's overwhelmed. And so is everyone else. This small community, they're so overwhelmed. They call that day their Pentecost. They were so immersed, so overcome by the love of God, it changed everything in their world what happened on that day was an epicenter was the epicenter that rippled through the whole world it was literally the epicenter for revival that spread through the whole world just that little band of believers led by a 27 year old it's the same thing like in the book of acts acts chapter 2 just that one event that rippled through the whole entire world and after a couple hundred years changed things so we don't realize those things don't make the nightly news do they but they change the world What's happening to change this world is not happening in Congress or, 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 or it's not some program or some government thing. It's not some legislation. You will not find the answer to what God is doing in the world by reading CNN. 
You have to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So what happened was the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They were so consumed. Nobody knows how to describe that event. But they all say that God met them there. Zinzendorf said it was the nearness of Christ. All he could describe. He said Christ came so near. They prayed all day, all night. What was interesting is Zinzendorf, a few days before that, spent all night in prayer seeking the Lord. A couple days later, many of them banded together and committed to 24-7 prayer. For over 100 years, about 120 years, that band of people prayed. It's not the only uh, uh, 24-7 prayer meeting throughout history, but one of the longest, not quite the longest, prayed 24-7. They banded together the group of them just kept growing. They sent, over the next hundred years, they sent most of their people out as missionaries. Those Moravians are the ones that led John Wesley to Jesus, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley that started the Great Awakening. Those Moravians are the ones who would go to the slaves. That's how Christianity, for the most part, got to Africans in slavery. Because those Moravians would even, some of them, sell themselves into slavery in the Caribbean to get the gospel to people. They took the gospel into the Americas, into to Native Americans. They were so, even the children were caught up in that. Before, before that outpouring, the children were, eh, whatever, who cares about God? And on that day that the Holy Spirit poured out, those children were there. The children worshipped. Everything changed in that community. They were characterized by unity, joy. They would sing all the time. They would sing all the time. Want to know why? What happens when you fill a cup with water until it overflows? How do you know you're filled with spirit? It comes out. Singing, worship, prayer, that's the evidence that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Not coming out, you need to get filled. You're running dry. They were overflowed. They would pray not only did they have the 24-hour prayer thing going on, but they would pray morning and evening, just seeking the Lord together. All the time, seeking the Lord. They are. They were missionaries before they were even missionaries. They were the beginning of what we understand as foreign missions. They went everywhere. They brought the gospel. Just a simple gospel that were saved by grace through faith. And they brought their songs, and they brought their unity, and they brought their type of community. They established about 30, uh, 30 or so communities. 25% of the people would stay in Hernhut to support the other 75%. John Wesley says, John Wesley went and visited their, their gathering. John Wesley actually was led to the Lord by them, but he went and finally got to visit them in Hernhut. And he said this, he said, Oh, that that type of Christianity would fill the earth like the oceans fill the sea. That's so prophetic, isn't it? Why? Because he saw the glory. That's the glory of God. Acts 2 community. And do you know what the Bible says? It will. That type of Christianity, I love that. That gathering of believers, that unity, that joy, that presence, that glory of God, that love, that fervor to set, go out, that kind of prayer, that kind of intimacy with Jesus, fill the earth like the glory of the Lord. The glory fills the earth like the ocean fills the sea. <clears throat> So 
the, West, the Wesleys and George Whitfield, they were hanging out with these Moravians. Moravians shared the gospel with them. These guys came to Jesus. They were on fire. One night, they're, they're on New Year's Eve, 19, or 1739, New Year's Eve, they gathered together in a place called Fetter Lane. And they sought the Lord on New Year's Eve. And the Holy Spirit came. Powerful. And it is the beginning of George Whitfield and John Wesley's and Charles Wesley's ministry. It's the beginning of the Great Awakening, what we call the Great Awakening, that transformed England and it transformed 13 colonies. The power of the Spirit came upon them. They began to open-air preach. They began to go to the poor. They began to go to the men in the coal mines. They would preach the gospel and people would fall down weeping and then get up and rejoice. They called them the, the enthusiasts because they were so emotional. John Wesley would even tell people, uh, I'd get out of that tree if I were you because while I'm preaching, people have been known to fall down. Some people wouldn't believe him and they would fall out of trees. The power of God would fall upon them as he was preaching. George Whitfield went all up and down the 13 colonies and all over England. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to Jesus. John Wesley would form them into small groups where he would disciple them. Tremendous discipline and diligence and discipleship were happening in those small groups. And out of those small groups came social reforms. William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade, he was an enthusiast. He was a follower of these guys. He was younger, obviously, than John Wesley. They, they, much of the, much of the uh, uh, justice and social reforms that we take for granted happened because of that. Because somebody realized this is not right. For example, I'll give you a, a quick one. You know that line that they put around those big cargo ships? I don't even know what it's called. It has a name. It's, basically, it's the guy's name. They, we paint that line around those cargo ships to say how much cargo you can put and not to go any further. Well, back in those days, in that mid-1700s, they would just load those ships up. Obviously not the big ones that we have, just wooden ships. They would load those ships with cargo. And they'd load them so much that it would sink. And the rich uh, owner of that boat, he'd get the insurance money. And all those people would die. Follower of John Wesley, follower of Christ, he said, that's not right. And he got, he was able to, to create, he, it's simple, right? He created the line. Why did he do it? Love. Why did he do it? Justice. He had that line painted around boats. He got them to the government to enforce that so that ships would not be weighed down any heavier than they were supposed to be. Things like that, things that we take for granted, social reforms we take for granted, but revival swept through England, and I'll tell you, the French Revolution happened because there was no revival. It's either revolution or revival. You look at what happened in France. You look at what happened in England. If there had not been revival in England, the poor would have rioted. But what happened was there was a tremendous economic lift in England. It transformed society. People stop drinking. They start working hard. They start saving their money. They start taking care of their kids. And there's an economic lift. People get into politics like William Wilberforce and they fight for reforms. And it brings a lift in society. I know many of you, you see what's on the news. You know that our economy is not doing great. Let me tell you, no bureaucracy and no legislation will ever change the economics of our nation. The disparity of rich and poor is growing. There's only one thing that will change it. And it's the foolish message that a man died on a cross and rose again. And his shed blood changes people's hearts. And when they're changed, society changes. That's it. You're telling me that when men pray to God, it will change something? Yeah, it's the only thing that will change something. You mean we talk to God, you pray, 
You just talk to God, you cry out to God, your tears will change. Yes, that's it. You're saying that when people accept Jesus and submit to his lordship and begin to walk in his way, that's what will change. That's it. That's the only thing that will change this world. And it's the only thing that will transform our society. And it's the only thing that will change your life. I need a breakthrough in my life. That's it. The power of God. And if it's only Him, if He's the only answer to the healing that we need in our families, the transformation that we need in our society, you know how many children there are out here that aren't safe? How many, how many girls before they're 18 sexually abused? Third. Least. You know how many kids out here? That's just girls. How many boys? How many young people will never even darken the doors of church unless something changes? There's only one answer. And it's not our programs. And it's not like my slick preaching. Because you got that one figured out. That's not going to do anything, right? I'm just being silly. What's going to do it? When Jesus is leader. Amen? And if it's only by his grace and his power, then we need a baptism. We need the outpouring spirit. And if it's only by his grace and power, there's no other answer than what? Prayer. Prayer says you believe he's the only one. You, can do. Throw, you throw yourself at the mercy of God. No revival ever began without prayer. The Moravians were the forerunners to that revival. I didn't even get through all the 2,000 years. I don't have time. But every revival, if I walked you through the 1800s, 1900s, and everything God is doing right now, massive revivals right now, there is more unity in the church today than ever before, what we call functional unity. There is more revival, more power and miracles and love happening right now in communities in America and throughout this world. There are more people coming to Jesus, and there is greater persecution. And I don't just mean, oh, because there's more people in the world. There's this more greater population. No, no, no. There's gr- there are communities all over the world who are praying. In 1727, it was one group of Moravians. Now, there are people praying 24-7, communities who are that on fire for God, who are walking in unity, who are loving Jesus, walking in holiness, who are sending out missionaries like the Moravians all over the world. In America, in Korea, in India, in China, all over the world. His glory is filling the earth like the oceans fill the sea. We're living in the midst of it. And it has never begun except for prayer. Prayer is the beginning of revival. It's what fuels revival. It's what characterizes revival. Why? Because it's when people start connecting with Jesus, humble themselves. Right? 2 Chronicles 7. If my people humble themselves, pray. That simple. They'll recognize there's nothing without me. They need me. And it can't happen without me empowering them. All throughout the 1800s, the revivals that happened birthed out of prayer. They birthed social reforms. Where do you think abolition of slaves came from? Where do you think orphanages and colleges and hospitals came from? All the things, the volunteer, volunteerism that we have in our country. Yeah, let's get behind a nonprofit organization. Where did it come from? It all came out of this 1800s. Where do you, how do you think missionaries found themselves in India and China and all over the world? Out of the 1800s. 
It was birthed out of revivals that happened right here in America. We all go on, many of us go on short-term missions trips. Where did that come from? 1800s. D.L. Moody, outpouring of the Spirit in a college, and students banded together to form the Student Volunteer Foreign Missions Group. And that has inspired short-term and long-term missions. Where does that all come from? Do you realize that what we live in right now, what you and I love, if this church, we love the grace of God. We love His presence. We love His Word. We love that we get to be in people's lives and share Jesus with them. We love to go and fight for justice. That's who we are. I mean, it's, this, this is the values in our culture. We're still trying to learn how to live it out fully, but this is our values. We love that we can lay hands on somebody and they're healed. All of that people died for to get, see it restored in the church. We see it in the book of Acts. Much of the church history, those things weren't happening. And yet people died. People laid down their life. People like John Wesley and D.L. Moody and Finney and Amy Semple McPherson and John G. Lake, they laid their lives down so that we could move in the fullness of God. Why am I talking about this? Because we need this in our hearts. We need that hunger. We need that vision. We need to be stirred and awakened for more of the Lord. We also need to make sure we don't lose what they laid their lives down for. Do you realize that there was a day when you couldn't even read the Bible? And now it lays for many Christians on the shelf gathering dust? When you couldn't even read it before? And now God wants to speak to you through his word? You used to not even be able to sing songs and yet we can come together and we can lift up our voice in unity and bless God because he's worthy of it. And yet some people just sit like, that's not my thing. Do you realize it's not about you, is it? It's not about me. It's about what Jesus wants in his church, the holiness that he wants in his church, the love, the unity of people who would lay their lives down like living sacrifices consumed by the fire of his spirit and give their lives away for the gospel to the nations so that he'll come back and restore all things. That's what it's about. It's not about you. And like I keep saying every week, and I'm going to keep saying it for a number of weeks, if we're not living for that, seeking first the kingdom, what else are we living for? Jesus is alive and leading his church. I got more stories, but let's pray.